We need to always remember, and I've said this many times over the years, that Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. And that when we read a passage such as 1 Timothy chapter 3, we need to realize that it's in the context of Paul's entire letter to Timothy, which is in the context of the pastoral epistles, which is in the context of all of Paul's letters, which is in the context of the New Testament, which is in the context of the Bible. So it's all coming from the source of the Spirit of the living God. But as we hone in on it, we need to understand the heart with which it was written and the context behind it. So while we're going to be in 1 Timothy, I'm going to start in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. And he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, that is of the fold of Israel. He has other sheep. He's speaking of the Gentiles, speaking of you and me. And he said, I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And the Lord Jesus in his wisdom also saw fit then to give a shepherd's heart to certain people. As a matter of fact, though we will be talking about shepherds and looking at overseers, understand that we are all shepherds. That every one of us have shepherding responsibilities. It may be to friends, it may be to family, it may be in the workplace. Every one of us are shepherding someone, somewhere, somehow, or we are growing up and we will shepherd someone, somewhere, somehow. But in the context of what Paul is asking Timothy to do, we're looking at those who are given a shepherd's heart to shepherd the people of God, specifically in a church fellowship, and yet don't miss the opportunity to apply everything we talk about to yourself and to your walk with Jesus. The psalmist, Asaph, he describes a shepherd this way, a specific shepherd. He says in Psalm 78, verse 70, that God also chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And so he, that is David, shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with skillful hands. It's a great picture of of a shepherd. And so now in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in this pastoral letter, Paul, who has a shepherd's heart, is writing to Timothy, who also has a shepherd's heart, to call on men who have shepherd's hearts to shepherd the people there in Ephesus. And Paul, you may recall, is writing to strengthen and encourage Timothy, especially against heresies, 
with what you know to be the goal of our instruction. What is the goal of our instruction? Love. Amen. The goal of our instruction is love. And so Paul turns to the kind of authority that shepherds by the lead of love. That love is primary. Love is at the heart. And everything else that we do, and however else we shepherd in our lives, it has to flow out of that place. It has to be from the source and from the root of love. With all that in mind, as we get into chapter 3, we're going to take it in uh, three or four parts tonight. I know when I say parts instead of points, it sounds longer, so we'll just make three or four points. <laughs> Point number one, we're going to look at the shepherd's heart, verses 1 through 4. Uh, secondly, we're going to look at the shepherd's home, that is where he lives, verses 5 through 7. Then we'll look at the servant of the house, verses 8 through 13, and finally we'll finish out verses 14 through 16 with the servant shepherd. So that's our outline for tonight. The shepherd's heart, the shepherd's home, the servant of the house, and finally the servant shepherd. Number one, the shepherd's heart. Verse one. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Remember, he's just come off discussing women. We talked about on Sunday... And the fact that in chapter 2, verse 8, the men get one verse of instruction. I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. We only get one thing because I think it's all we can focus on. You know? (laughs) So we get the one. We work on that. And then Paul goes on by the Spirit to share many things with women. And we discuss those things on Sunday. But now he's right back to men. So note that. He he is doing some back and forth here. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer... By the way, office of overseer is just a single word. The word office isn't even there. If any man aspires to be an overseer, it is a fine work he desires. This is an office. This is an established role in the church. We know that. It's verified in other places. We'll see a very similar listing in Titus... Peter talks about shepherds in 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll look a little bit at that tonight as well. But this is a position that God has ordained in the local church fellowship to maintain a sense of order because God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace as in all the churches of the saints, 1 Corinthians 14.33. This is a fine work. So understand that, that shepherding is work. It is an effort. It's not a position by which one skates by. It is, in my opinion, serving the servants. It's the lowest rung on the ladder. It's the one who gets the dirtiest and down beneath everyone else to encourage, to uh, feed, to build up, to nurture, to lead. And that's the shepherd. If you skip ahead, thinking about this fine work, look at verse 14, where Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. So the organized church, which in some places is a bad word, is a good thing. People talk about, oh, the organized church is horrible. Hey, we're the organized church, gang. 
And the organized church was organized by the Holy Spirit of God. This is His deal. His church. And the organized truth is, the church is here to bolster truth and to support sound doctrine. There is a purpose for the church being organized, for the church being local fellowships as we see throughout the world. And we exist by divine organization. And part of that organization is the calling out of shepherds. Or overseers, as is the word used here. Actually, there are three words, three descriptive words for those who lead a church body in a local fellowship. The first word is what we see right here, and that is overseer, or some translations say bishop. The word is uh, episcopes. Episcopes, where we get the word episcopalian. So there's an entire branch of the church based on this single word. Why is that? Because the Episcopalian church takes the bishop or senior pastor model of church management. They say each church has an episcopate, a bishop, who oversees that church and that is his role. Now we have some similarity to that in a senior pastor model, although our model is, is softened because it's not just a senior pastor. I'll explain in a minute. But the overseer bishop, the episcopes, that translates one who looks after. One who keeps watch. One who cares for. And that's the role of the overseer. The second word that we'll note in the scriptures is elder. Some churches refer to their elders. And that word is presbyteros. Presbyteros, which obviously sounds like Presbyterian, and that's where they get the word for the Presbyterian church. It describes the leadership model of an elder-led church. So you have the board of elders, and the board of elders makes all the decisions, and the board of elders then hires in the staff, and and hires in the teaching pastor and and everyone else, but the board of elders is, is the thing. And I grew up in a church that was Presbyterian, though it was not a Presbyterian church. That was the leadership model. The only problem with that leadership model is you've got a board of volunteer elders and then you have a paid ministry staff and the paid ministry staff are every day kind of on the front lines and the board of elders are not. And and so there can be conflict and I've seen this happen over and over. At the Bridge Fellowship, we have elder, overseer, bishop, shepherds who are paid and not paid. We have an entire team. So we have people who are here every day, and we have those who are not, but all together we work together for the oversight, for the shepherding, for the eldering, if you will, of this fellowship. But the elder, presbyteros, that indicates maturity. Wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit and comes by experience, which is why we don't have teenage elders. I know some do. Mormons, um, but you know, there are other... Groups that will call someone an elder who's not an elder. I mean, inherent in being an elder is you've got to have some life experience, some wisdom, and, and have been you know raised up in that and, and, and understand that. So, among the Jews, elders is a very familiar term. Because they had the elders who were the Sanhedrin, the 70. They were referred to as the elders of Israel. Elders. We also will note six times in the book of Revelation you see the 24 elders around the throne. By the way, what are the elders doing? They're worshiping. And I will tell you that in my opinion, next to the ministry of the word and prayer, that an elder's primary responsibility is worship. 
and is leading the body in worship and is setting the example of worship. That's what we see of the 24 elders in Revelation. So we've got overseer, we've got elder, we have shepherd. That's the third word. Shepherd is poimano in the Greek. So episkopes, presbyteros, poimano. Poimano is also translated pastor. Uh, pastor is the kind of Anglicized word, but the real word there is shepherd. Why do we call our leadership shepherds at the bridge? I prefer the term. And the reason I prefer the term is it's the least presumptuous of the three. Bishop sounds like I need a big hat. You know, elder sounds like, yes, I am, pipsqueaks. But shepherd just kind of smells a little stinky. You know, shepherds smell like sheep. Shepherds were the outcasts of society. Shepherds were the lowest rung. As I said before, that really should be the mentality of serving in a church fellowship. Not lording it over, but shepherding alongside and even underneath, caring for and carrying the flock if necessary. And I think the the term shepherd is really good for both a leader's head and his heart. That it keeps us in a humble place. Because ultimately, we're really not even shepherds. We're just sheep. We're sheep who get to shepherd, but we have one shepherd, the chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 21, verse 16, Jesus said to Peter a second time, He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I really like you. It's the Greek language there. And what did Jesus say? He said, shepherd my sheep. In fact, in all three times that Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, all three times when Peter kind of gave the best answer that he could in the current situation, Peter responded, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. It was all about the sheep. And I'll tell you, it's something Peter never forgot. How do you know that? Because 30 years later, when Peter was writing his letter, around A.D. 64, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he wrote, Therefore I exhort elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. That was Peter's command, if you will, to the rest of the shepherds. Shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to God. And by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, in the first four verses of that chapter, Peter uses elder, presbyteros, shepherd, poimano, and oversight or overseer, that is, episcopes. He uses all three words consecutively. He uses them together. Why? Because they speak of one office in the church. And while I understand there are some traditions that break it up and they've got their bishops and they have their elders and they've got their cardinals and they've got their popes. I mean, they've got all the different offices throughout the church. But in reality, if you study it in Scripture, the elder and the, and the shepherd and the bishop are all three the same person. They're the same role. We could just say leader. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 5.4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he uses all three terms interchangeably. Guess what? He's not the only one. Luke and Paul do as well. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Luke is writing from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, Presbyteros. And then in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, Paul speaking, says, Be on guard for yourselves, talking to the elders, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopes, to shepherd, poimen, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So again, it's one role with three aspects or three descriptive words of that particular role, not separate offices. This is one role of leading. And what's really interesting is some, some shepherd well, some oversee well, some bring wisdom to the table. We see differences in the way different leaders approach leadership, but the bottom line is they are all one and the same role in the church. And so here at the bridge we just call them shepherds. In verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Really? How is that even possible? This is the one that is a sticking point. Every time I talk to someone about being an elder, they always say, well, it's that first one, above reproach. How is that even? I don't even... Well, what does the word mean? Above reproach. It's two Greek words stuck together, as we so often see. It's on epileptos. On is the negative. It's not. And then epileptos means to bring upon yourself. So, to, to be above reproach is one who does not bring upon himself. That's literally what it means. One who doesn't bring blame upon himself. One who doesn't bring accusation upon himself. So, to actually live above reproach, hey, granted, no one is blameless except in Jesus and by the blood of Jesus. But the Christ follower is the one, and especially he who would aspire to be an elder, is the one who is seeking not to do anything that could bring blame on him. I'm going to choose to live a life where I know I can go this way or that way, but if I go that way, there will be blame. So I'm not going to go that way. And it really is making conscious decisions. How do you live beyond or or above reproach? You pursue holiness. You seek after righteousness. You hunger for what is good. You flee impurity. And in so doing, you will not find yourself in the position of someone even being able to accuse you of anything or bring reproach upon you. I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but many of you are aware when you head down uh, Highway 20, when you're heading out of town, you're heading past Anacortes, you go down towards Sharp's Corner, there's a Texaco station there on the side, right in that country corner restaurant. And you know what's right beside the Texaco station? The Bikini Barista, right? The Bikini Barista. Well, isn't that great? I, I could make so many jokes right now, I'm, I'm really holding back. Those of you on staff, I did find my filter this afternoon. I know I didn't have it this morning, but I found it. The Bikini Barista. I won't get gas at that Texaco. Now, Cheryl kind of pokes me about it. Just, just get gas. You don't have to look just right by. Here's the reason I won't get gas at the Texaco. I don't even want to be seen driving in there. I don't want anybody in this fellowship seeing me pull out of there. Innocently, I just was getting gas at the Texaco, but I'm pulling out of right where the Bikini Baristas is, and and, and anybody could say, 
What is he doing? I don't need to even go there. I'll drive the extra mile, in fact, the extra couple of miles to the reservation where it's cheaper anyway. (laughs) Above reproach. To live a life where you can't be blamed. Paul put it this way. He said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Disqualified from what? Salvation? No. Disqualified from the very message he just preached. I don't want to walk out of here having taught something and then I do something and you see me do that something wrong and then turn around and go, well then why should we listen to anything he has to say? What he just preached tonight? Totally bogus. I'm throwing it out. And that's my fault. That would be on me. Disqualified. So the elder is one who is above reproach. By the way, it's so important that Paul bookends this entire section with above reproach. He starts by saying that an overseer must be above reproach. And down in verse 7, he talks about the fact that he will not fall into reproach. Either way, Paul is is surrounding this whole thing saying a shepherd in a church fellowship must live without reproach. And he continues. Now he's going to give 10 to 11 bullet points here. And we're going to go through some of these and think about them. But it's not just a checklist. Something I I realized actually years ago began to see this, that more than a checklist or a legalistic line-by-line thing, Paul is pointing to the heart of a shepherd and explaining what the heart of a shepherd yields in terms of these actual behaviors and points. So listen to them all together. He continues after, must be above reproach, and he says, the husband of one wife, which, by the way, is not what it really says. But I'll tell you that in a minute. Temperance, prudence, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, which is not exactly what that says either, but I'll tell you that in a minute. Or pugnacious, which is exactly what that means. Gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Okay, stop right there. He's just gone 10 or 11 things. And I say 10 or 11 because two of them actually go right hand in hand together. But he begins with the husband of one wife. In the Greek, aner mias gunaikos. Aner, man. Mias, one. Gunaikos, woman. What does that mean? He's a one-woman man. A shepherd must be a one-woman man. Now, it's difficult to understand exactly... What was Paul saying? Was this euphemistic? Uh, Was he using something that people just kind of knew? Oh, one-woman man. I mean, would that have been a logo on a t-shirt? You know, where's he picking this stuff up? What does he mean by this? I'll tell you what. Find me four commentaries, and I will point out to you five different opinions. Because everybody's all over the charts on this. But it's not that hard, in my simple mind... The emphasis is on the word one. The emphasis is not on past. It's not on future. It's not really even on present. The emphasis is on the word one. He's not talking about the number of liaisons a a shepherd might have. Which is not to say that it's okay to have a number of liaisons. Understand me. The one woman man, listen, is the standard that is much bigger than just disallowing polygamy. It is much greater than saying a shepherd can't have concubines and mistresses, which was commonplace, especially in Greco-Roman culture. 
Demosthenes was the one who told us about that. We've read a quote from him several times. Something to the effect of, every man needs, um, needs a mistress and a housekeeper and a wife. And between those three, you're going to be okay. Every man needs three women, minimum. Okay, so, but that's not, again, what he's talking about. It's more than disallowing polygamy. It's more than concubines and mistresses. And it is more than talking about divorce. That's been the hard-nosed legalistic perspective of this passage for decades. If he's divorced, he's out. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, your shepherd better be, your overseer better be a one-woman man. Listen to me, and you can argue with me later on this, but I have come to believe that this is even more important than just being sure a man is married. What do you mean? It's true that marriage provides an overseer with stability and a wisdom that he doesn't have on his own. And all of our shepherds would would agree with me on that that there are things that our wives provide for us in terms of insight and tenderness and sensitivity that we would lack otherwise. We're better for our marriages. But listen, Paul was not married. Would he have been disqualified as an elder in a church? Timothy and Titus were probably not married. Although we can't say for sure, but we have nothing historically or biblically that indicates that either one of these two young men were... And what about the chief shepherd? Was Jesus ever married? I don't care if you enjoyed the Da Vinci Code, it's wrong. No, he was never married. Would Jesus then, therefore, be disqualified as the shepherd of the Bridge Christian Fellowship? Marriage is not the main point here. Okay, so what is it then? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. What Paul is saying here, he's got to be a one-woman man. What does that mean? It means he's faithful. So let's say we have a shepherd whose wife passes away. Is he now disqualified from being a shepherd? No, he's been a one-woman man. He has been faithful. He is a picture of faithfulness to his wife. Yes, maybe she passed away, but I'll tell you what, I'm not going to ask for someone to step down in that position. I ran into that. Cheryl and I did our first year of youth ministry. We met a man sweetest man in the world. Older gentleman whose wife had passed away a year before. We had him over to dinner. Do you remember that, Cheryl? And we were talking with him and I was so impressed. His his Bible knowledge was amazing. His love for the fellowship was secure and solid and he had been asked to step down by the rest of the shepherds because his wife had died. And something sat wrong with me on that. Something's not right. We're missing the point here. That man needed to be a shepherd. And as a matter of fact, in my first year of youth ministry, my first year of ministry, when I didn't have a clue, that man was my best shepherd. We're talking about faithfulness. And Jesus says in Luke 12, 42, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Who's the faithful steward? He's looking for faithfulness. Some are married, some are not. Now, all of our shepherds are married. And one of the questions, one of the things that we do look for when we ask someone to step into leadership is, are you married? Because we believe that enhances the shepherding capability. But what I'm trying to get across here, and I hope I am, is that marriage isn't the thing, it's the faithfulness that's the thing. That's the heart. 
Marriage and being faithful in a marriage is the outgrowth of what is already in the heart, and that is someone who has the characteristic of faithfulness. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.2, It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So a one-woman man shows himself to be faithful. That is, beyond the reproach of faithlessness. Alright? Now the next two traits in the list here are synonymous and ought to be taken somewhat together. And that is temperate and prudent. Temperate and prudent. Temperate means vigilant unto restraint. Which is interesting. I, I kind of like that. Temperate. Someone who is vigilant to restrain himself. Someone who is aware, perhaps, of his sin nature. Aware of the lures. Uh, aware of maybe directions he could go that would be inappropriate. He's temperate. He is vigilant unto restraint. And prudent is like it. It's a synonym in the Greek. And it's clear-headed. Unaffected in judgment. So we're talking about someone who is vigilant and clear-headed. Another word for it might be sober. And what's interesting about both of these words is they are used often in Greek language regarding a particular social custom. And I'll let you chew on that or maybe uh, sip on that just for a minute. Temperate and prudent. Jesus said in Matthew 26.41, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the temperate and prudent shepherd understands that. Hey man, my flesh is weak. Oh, my spirit's all over being willing. I want to do what God has called me to do. And I want to be faithful to Jesus. And my spirit is in man, but my flesh is my problem. The temperate and prudent overseer. The next two words, respectable and hospitable. Respectable is, as it appears, it's modest, it's seemly. It's not someone who's out there making an idiot of himself, you know. It's someone who has a certain degree of seemliness in his conduct and in his behavior. Hospitable is someone who is welcoming and generous to guests. I love Hebrews 13, verse 2. One of the coolest verses, I think, in the New Testament. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. You know what? That's not just, you know, metaphorical. That's biblical. Have you ever entertained an angel and didn't know it? I mean, I, I, I can't wait to look back and find out when that happened. Has that happened here at the Bridge Christian Fellowship? Have we entertained an angel? I mean, other than, than Deb Seibel, have we entertained an angel without knowing it? Without, she's like, oh yeah. Think about that though. I mean, that really affects how we are when it comes to hospitality. The next word is able to teach, and this is a big one. Able to teach. Because Peter said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, that the apostles, their primary role was prayer and the ministry of the word. That he upheld those two as the most important things that overseers could do, that the apostles could do. We don't have time to be taking care of the widow's food distribution, Acts chapter 6. That's important. It matters, but if we do that, then we will not be doing what we're called to do, which is prayer first and the ministry of the Word. And so here Paul says the shepherd needs to be able to teach. 
What does that mean exactly? Well, able there is apt or skillful or studied in biblical doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean every shepherd will teach or has to teach. It means that they are apt or able to. It means that shepherds are people who are in the Word of God. Overseers are students of the Word, are concerned with and listening to and focused on sound biblical doctrine. And this is so vital because right now in these last days, people are coming up with all kinds of bizarreties. I have never seen it like it's going on right now. Part of that is thanks to social media and the Internet. But part of it is simply where Christians are getting so strung out and hyped up on so many different things. And I'm aware of it too. I mean, I get the emails. I'm online. We are having a prophecy update on Sunday. We're going to explain some things that I hope will give some, some perspective and some grounding while at the same time keeping us light on our feet. Get that grounded but light on our feet so we're good to go. <laughs> But my friends, Jesus said we would see false prophets right and left in the last days. And we are seeing them. And let me just take a side note to say this. The most difficult false prophet to deal with is the one you know. It's the person that you thought you trusted. Remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago how Paul warned that the false teaching at Ephesus was going to come right up through the shepherds themselves. So the shepherds better be Men of the Word. Better be apt to teach, at least focused heavily on God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Paul wrote to Timothy in that letter, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So the overseer doesn't have to be a Bible scholar but just skilled with the Word. doesn't mean you have to know all the, the Greek and all of that, but you need to be in the Word and familiar with the Word. As Jesus said, Matthew 4.4, 4, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So overseers in this fellowship, are you in the Word every day? We ought to be. That ought to be part of our everyday focus, being in the Word together. And the rest of us all, listen, the more you are in the Word, the more apt you will be to teach. You see how that works? That The more you're studied in the Word, the more the Word is going to come up when people ask you questions. The more the Word is going to arise in your heart when you have to answer certain situations. Or share with someone or deal with someone who's hurting. The Word's there because you're in the Word. The more we feed on the Word, the more apt to teach. All of us will be, and I say, ought to be. The next one, he says, is not addicted to wine. And what goes really well with that is pugnacious. The angry drunk, you know. Pugnacious, that means ready for a fight. (laughs) The pugnacious person is a brawler. And alcohol just enhances that. So he puts the two together, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. I'll explain addicted in just a few minutes. But this is the social custom to which temperance and prudence are often applied. So what's interesting to me here is that four out of ten qualities on this list have to do specifically with sobriety. He talks about temperance, prudence, 
not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. Why? Help me understand this. Why have Christians become so casual and comfortable with alcohol? I know I talk about this from time to time. Sometimes because, again, it's the easy target. But my friends, why are we so cavalier about drinking as if it really isn't that big a deal? I've heard that so much. In fact, I believe I've said that in my past. It's not that big a deal. Come on. Lighten up. It's just one glass. Okay, let's listen to what the Bible has to say about just one glass. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29. Just listen to this. You can look it up if you want to. But Proverbs 23, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Now, if you haven't picked it up yet, who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. No, don't look at it then. He says in verse 32, at the last, it bites like a serpent. A serpent? Oh, I recall there was a serpent in the garden. He says it stings like a viper, a snake. He says, your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. That's verse 33, and over that most of our culture would laugh. Oh yeah, I saw something really funny last night when I was bombed out of my mind. You're not going to believe this. This is just great. Really? Verse 34, you will be, be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Makes sense. Or like one who lies down on the top of a mast of a ship. And then he says this, They struck me, I did not become ill. They beat me, I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. He is talking about the mentality. And man, if I have ever read anything that is the mentality of drinking in a culture, our culture, I mean, that's it. That's what people say, that's what people think. But let's hone in a little more since we're talking about overseers and the whole concept of drinking. In Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings. Now kings would be leaders, right? To drink wine. It is not for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. However, give strong drink to him who is perishing. Okay? Give wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. So my question to you, brothers and sisters and leaders, is are you bitter? If so, drink up. Are you perishing? Pour out. Are you impoverished and you need to be numb from it all? Biblical rationale for drinking is right there. The biblical rationale for drinking, if you're looking for one, if you want to support the habit of drinking, is bitterness, perishing, and impoverishment. If those are the three things that describe your life, well, man, drink up. 
That was the biblical rationale until the Holy Spirit was poured out. And now, the biblical rationale, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's our choice. But that's the biblical. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But then, number 9 and 10 on the list. So not addicted to wine and pugnacious, gentle and peaceable, he continues. Gentle and peaceable. And we talked about this Actually, on Sunday, it surprised me. It really wasn't where I thought the teaching was going to go on Sunday. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, we're told to pray. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he's saying the very character, the very nature of overseers, of leaders, of shepherds, of any of us who shepherd anyone, really, should be that we are gentle and peaceable. Why? Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You want to show Jesus to people? It comes from gentility. It comes from being peaceful in the way you live your life. In the church setting and for overseers, think about it this way. Sheep feel unsafe around rough and anxious shepherds. But where the shepherds are at peace, the sheep feel calm. That's why division among leaders is such a dangerous thing. By the way, we often in our prayers, as, as a group of shepherds, pray against division. We pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, I'm not sure if we've had a meeting that I can recall where that wasn't prayed at some point. Because where the shepherds are peaceable, where the shepherds are gentle the rest of the fellowship feels more secure. But if there's division among shepherds, that's where church splits begin almost every single time. The last thing he says on the list is free from the love of money. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, don't shepherd for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now why is that in there and why is that an issue? Because especially in the first century, century, it was problematic. You had portable prophets coming in and out, roving rabbis, and they were seeking to line their pockets by fleecing the flock. They would show up, and this was the way of the, of the pagan prophet to come in and make a living giving his prophecies and take a collection and make lots of money. And so Paul specifically is saying, look, it's not about making money. Now he also says that it is a worthy thing for a pastor to be paid. I'll show you the passages. I have them all highlighted and circled in my Bible. (laughs) But what he's talking about here is not going after people just to get money out of them. That is not a reason for shepherding. That's why I am so pleased and thankful, pleased with and thankful for all of our volunteer shepherds who are doing it because they love this church. So faithful, proven, stable shepherds This list, as we go through it, these are people who put the flock first. They're ones who who care more for the sheep than they do for themselves. You know why David was called to be a shepherd in Israel? It's because he had already acted out the role. He proved in his young life that for him, being a shepherd meant the sheep come first. It meant self-sacrifice. So that the sheep would be safe. Let me read this to you. This is back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Remember Goliath is out there and he's taunting the Israelites and David goes to bring some cheese to his brothers. And he's like, what's going on? Well, there's a giant out there. And David's like, I'll fight him. Well, word gets back to Saul. 
And David said to Saul, as they brought him before Saul, 1 Samuel 17.32, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are a youth. Well, he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and I attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. You know what that means? That means David was fighting a lion face to face. I would have grabbed his tail and run the other direction, if anything, you know. He's got his beard. He's grabbing the bear, same way by the face, and taking him on head to head. He said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. (laughs) And as he was exiting the tent, added, And may the Lord be with you. (laughs) And you know the story. David took him out. Because for David, the flock of Israel was more important than his own life. And that's the attitude of the shepherd as well. To put the flock first. You know what that means? That means when it comes to all of these different issues that we look at, that is being hospitable and respectable and able to teach and not addicted to wine, all of these things, that means that it's not more important for me to get to do what I want to do. It's more important that I take on these characteristics for the rest of this fellowship. I think that's a great attitude for every believer. I follow Christ and I do what He calls me to do and I live morally and I live purely and I pursue holiness not because of me but because of everybody else because they're more important. And I want to show them Jesus. I don't want to show them me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it is the sober, gentle, peaceable shepherd who grabs the lion by the beard and says, you're not going to take any of these lambs. So that's the shepherd's heart. I believe that's what God is looking for in an overseer, in a shepherd, in an elder. Now, number two, the shepherd's home. What Paul turns to at this point is he, he gives these three examples of literally a shepherd living his life. Situations in which all of these previous previous qualities now are practiced or they come into play. And the first one is in parenting. Verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This is an important one. Godly shepherding is first and foremost developed in the home. You start with your kids, because they will mess you up. You begin with them, and I have learned in my own experience that children are the best teachers of patience and compassion and gentleness and not being addicted to much wine. Children will teach these things. The Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. He's like a father. Be that way. 
Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. And when you learn how to correct children with love and compassion, then you learn how to correct brothers and sisters in Christ with that same love and compassion. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And it's a poor shepherd in a church fellowship that exasperates people and causes them to lose heart. So we learn at home in parenting. Now, a quick side note on this. Everyone has a free will. Every child has a free will. And kids in the most well-managed spiritual households will go, can go off the deep end. And as far as I'm concerned, that does not disqualify a person from being a shepherd. The question is not, how does the the child respond? The question is, how does the shepherd manage? How does he lead? Even in the most well-managed church fellowship, people go off the deep end and do nutty things. It's not my fault. That's really what I'm trying to say here, Glenn. It's just not my fault, okay? But parenting is proving ground number one. Second proving ground in an overseer's life is... Well, not just in parenting, but also in pride. Verse 6. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, if you're a new convert, I'm not talking about you in particular. But I have found that sometimes the most black and white legalistic judgmental person is the new convert. Oftentimes the new convert is the one who's coming come out of a horrendous sin life and now is incredibly judgmental of people who are in the same life that he or she just came out of. And the reason is because as a new convert, we want it to be black and white. we got to be solid in our faith, and so we almost become condemning of all the things that we used to be. Well, that's why a shepherd can't be recently converted. And remember that pride is a primary, if not the primary characteristic of Satan. Isaiah 14, verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The height of spiritual maturity is most evident among the lowliest of servants. Okay, so the third proving ground, there's in parenting, in pride, and finally in public. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach, there it is again, and the snare of the devil. So along with the devil's pride on the inside comes the devil's snare on the outside. Which is that very simple question, what are you doing when no one is watching? When you think you are not around people who are aware of you. I used to go to youth specialty seminars uh, for youth pastors. 1,500 to 2,000 youth pastors would meet on the West Coast or on the East Coast for these seminars. And every year when I went, at the beginning, when they were kind of laying out the week and the seminars and giving everybody some insight, every single time they stood up there and said, and listen, youth pastors, the entire hotel knows that we are youth pastors. Please don't go back to your rooms tonight and order things off the porn menu of your TV because they will know. Please don't do things now that you're away from your church and away from people who know you. Don't do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. And that's what this is talking about. You get outside and away from the body. And by the way, that's why being away from the church is not ever a good idea. 
The further away I am from the body, the easier it is to keep think that, wow, no one's going to see, no one's going to know. Sin creeps in. But understand, when you think no one in the church is watching, the world is. The world is. And is looking for every opportunity by the devil to discredit Christianity. Number three, not part three, because we're not doing this in parts. We're just doing three points. Point three, the servant in the house. The servant in the house. And from here we shift now on to servants, diakonos. The word there in verse eight, deacons, diakonos, is simply that. It's servant, minister. It's used throughout the New Testament to refer to those who simply serve. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine. Well, that's interesting. I'll come back to that. Or or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So that beyond reproach is still out there. I believe it's out there for every one of us. If we're going to follow Jesus, let's follow Jesus beyond reproach. Let's not make room for reproach to fall because if it falls on me as a follower of Jesus, it falls on Jesus and the church. Now, I'm not going to run this whole list like we just did with the shepherds. You can read through it and think through it on your own, but I do want to point out a couple of things. One of the things he mentions here is not being double-tongued. Double-tongued is the word delogos. Delogos, that is double-worded. And the idea is someone who talks out of both sides of their mouth. Now what's interesting is the word logos is used, which is in the Greek mindset, the reason. So it's really like being double-minded. Saying one thing, doing another. And it's the double-minded man, James 1.8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is the person you can't trust. This is a person who has no integrity. This is a person with the forked tongue. So, double-tongued, double-worded. And then note that he says the deacon, and i got to point this out, is not addicted to much wine. Okay, so, so the overseer is not addicted to wine. The deacon is not addicted to much wine. Much is the word polos in the Greek, and it means a large amount. So what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that the the shepherd can have a sip a day and the deacon can go in for a second round? I'm trying to understand. Seriously, what does this mean? Shepherd's not addicted to wine, period. And the deacon, not to much wine. And in both cases, we see that word addicted, if you're reading in the NASB. Let me give you a more specific translation. In the shepherd's list up above, that word addicted is literally addicted to wine is one word. And it is paraoinos. Now that's important because it's, again, one of those Greek words that's put together. Para and oinos. Oinos is just wine. Para means near. So directly, specifically translating it, the overseer is not in the vicinity of wine. It's not just that he's not addicted It's literally, if I'm translating it correctly, and I think I am, the overseer doesn't go near wine. Beer is okay. No, no. (laughs) The overseer doesn't go near alcohol. 
the servant, the deacon, the diakonos, the word there, not addicted to much wine, that word is prosecco. It's a different word. That word means not paying attention to wine. So in other words, there's not a prohibition for the servant, for the deacon. Uh, that, and there's not a prohibition for a follower of Jesus from drinking. There's not a prohibition there, but a deacon is one who's really not paying attention to it because it's not that important. For the servant of the Lord serving in the church, you're not heading home going, man, I cannot wait till I can get in my chair, put on my slippers, and grab my beer or get my glass of wine. The servant of the Lord is not thinking about that. It's not that important to him. But the shepherd, okay, Rick's personal opinion. A deacon must at least be measured with drinking. A shepherd, in my opinion, should abstain. Do our shepherds all abstain? Why did I ask that question out loud? No, they don't. They don't all abstain. My opinion. And I have never... We've, we've actually had conversations about this. Should we put that in as a rule that if you're a shepherd, you don't drink? And I can't quite go there because, again, the legalistic side... The Bible doesn't say that drinking's a sin. It says drunkenness is. The Bible doesn't say you cannot have a sip of wine or a glass of beer. The Bible doesn't say that, but it does warn heavily and over and over about how dangerous it is And for those who are in a leading position, O Lemuel, I think a shepherd should abstain. My opinion. But, back to servants, diakonos. They must first be tested before serving. One other thing just to note here real quickly is that Paul mentions, he uses this phrase, holding to the mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith. You know what's going on right now? People are into the mystery. You know, they're into the deep things. They're into numerology. And they're into the constellations. And they're into all the things that are going on out there. Oh, I got this new secret. Oh, I got a great new revelation. I love what John Corson says. If it's new, it isn't true. He's right. There's nothing new under the sun. And it is dangerous, brothers and sisters, when we think, when I begin to proclaim, I have a revelation that none of you have ever heard before. Check this out. Danger. Warning. The mystery of the faith. What is the mystery of the faith? I'm going to tell you in just a minute. But listen to what the Bible says. Mark chapter 4, verse 21. A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And then Jesus taught. And at the very end of His life on that Thursday night, do you remember what He said to the apostles? I have made everything known to you. You are no longer servants. You are now My friends because I have disclosed everything to you. The revelation is here. The revelations have been made. And we ought not think we're going to find out some new secret or some new mystery that is other than what we have already been given in the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And we'll talk more about that on Sunday. But the mystery of the faith has been revealed. 
You ought to know what the mystery of the faith is. Now, if you're not sure, what exactly does he mean by that phrase? Again, we'll come to that in just a second. Verse 11. Women, likewise, be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, if your version says wives, it is a translator's assumption. Because the word there is the same word we looked at on Sunday. It's gune. Yes, it can be wife. It is used to speak of a wife. It's also used to speak more often just of a woman. It's a term of respect for a woman. Lady might be a better translation for us. The ladies also. The gune, the the, the, the woman. Remember, Jesus called his mother gune. She was not his wife. So here, suddenly he uses this word, uh, gune, likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. And so the the question is, are we saying wives, that the deacons must have wives who are of a certain characteristic, which is the tradition I grew up with, or are we saying women deacons? I think we're saying women deacons. I don't think we're talking about wives. I think we're talking about deaconesses, but not malicious gossips, temperate and faithful. So he adds to the list... The rest of the list of deacons, I think, applies, and then he adds a little more to the list, specifically for the ladies, don't gossip, be temperate. Well, that was right out of the shepherd's list. Faithful in all things. That's interesting. Also out of the shepherd's list. If we translate this wives, if we say it has to be women that he's talking, uh, wives that he's talking about, then that would necessitate that we translate the rest, husbands. That deacons must be husbands of dignity. You know, and we go through the whole thing and we translate everywhere we see men, we've got to translate that husbands. It's not the intent that ministry in the church only be handled by married men, because that's what we would say. If we're going to say this is wives, then we have to say you cannot minister or serve in the church unless you're married. Are you willing to go there? That anyone in any ministry must be married. That means anyone serving in children's ministry must be married. That means if you're on worship team, you must be married. Rachel, you're fired. (laughs) That means marriage is the standard by which all... Marriage is not the thing, brothers and sisters. Faithfulness is the thing. And note, he says that, that she ought to be faithful in all things and dignified. The plain text indicates women in ministry roles. He starts out talking about the men. He goes, oh yeah, and the the women. He he mentions some things for them. Landing on faithful. And that last one stands out again because faithful indicates the same heart quality as the one woman man among the shepherds. Which is a character trait of one who stays true in relationships. Now in verse 12, so I do absolutely believe women is referring to deaconesses. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife. Well, that's not fair. So the guys, okay, it's not husbands of one wife. It's the same phrase as used above. Deacons must be a one-woman man. Faithful. It's the same concept. A one-woman man, good managers of children, and their own households. Now, some say that because verse 11, women, there is sandwiched between the deacon list, verses 8 through 10, and 
the deacon as husband in verse 12, that the woman sandwiched in there, that means it must be wives. Okay, then let's do what I said as we began. Use the Bible as your commentary on the Scripture. We don't take one Scripture by itself. We look at 1 Timothy 3 in the context of 1 Timothy, in the context of the pastorals, in the context of Paul's letters, in the context of the New Testament. Understand what I'm saying? So what's the larger context tell us about women in ministry roles in the church? It has to be consistent. The Bible shows us men and women serving as deacons. The Bible does that. So Paul cannot be saying only married men can be servants. Only married men can be diakonos. As a matter of fact, just ask Phoebe. Romans chapter 16 verse 1. She is listed as a diakonos of Cancrea, east of uh, Corinth. Phoebe was a deaconess. Paul names her, calls her deaconess of the church at Cancrea. If you need more, ask Euodia and Suntuke in Philippi. Ask Prisca, Mary, Junius, Tryphania, Tryphosa, Persis, and Julia in Rome. All listed as fellow servants of Paul's. Men and women, all servants of the Lord. Deaconesses in form and in function in their respective churches. Do we have deacons and deaconesses at the bridge? Yes, we do. We do. We just don't have the title. Because honestly, while you could, you could absolutely biblically make a case for having titled deacons. You know, deacon so-and-so and deaconess so-and-so. You can do that, absolutely. I just don't think it's necessary because a deacon is a servant. And we have people in multiple roles of ministry and serving and deaconing, if you will, throughout our fellowship. It is what they are. What they do is what they are. So women and men, deacons, I do believe, and the Scripture is clear, that a shepherd must be a man. Because there's nowhere else in the Scriptures that declares or designates a woman in that role. But there are plenty of places where a woman is designated as a deaconess. Am I clear? Am I making sense here? Okay. And if you disagree with me, please send me an email. Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons or servants obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. High standing and great confidence. Why? Because serving builds up faith. Listen, if, if you're struggling with your faith, if you're saying, oh, I'm just having a hard time believing, and I feel like I'm falling, and I don't feel like I'm, I'm really trusting in Jesus like I really want to, you know what you ought to do? Serve. Get into ministry, man. Plug in to an area in the fellowship where you can serve, and you will find your faith increases. Because serving does that. It builds confidence. It brings a high standing. Hey, just ask Stephen. The first deacons, we kind of assume, because they were servants, in Acts chapter 6 were called out. Because, as I mentioned earlier, that there was this issue with the, with the widows' food distribution, and the Greek widows were not being cared for like the Jewish widows were, and there arose a complaint and concerns about that. And so Peter stands up and says, look, <laughs> we can't be waiting tables here. we got to be about... Prayer in the ministry of the Word. So choose from among you seven men 
and he lists out some qualities to look for, some heart qualities. Choose seven guys and let them take care of this. And they chose Stephen, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8 of Acts chapter 6 tells us Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Listen, he was called to be a servant for the widow's food distribution. And in so doing, he began to serve and work in the church. And next thing you know, this guy's a power player. Because he's just serving God. And it gets better than that. He's out there preaching. He is powerful. He is solid in the Word. And so they drag him before the Sanhedrin, before the elders of Israel. And it says in Acts 6, verse 15, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I don't know, glowing or something. Or at total peace. Or having authority perhaps. You know the story, Acts chapter 7. He begins to unload the entire Bible on them. Leading up to Messiah and what it all means. And at the end of this amazing sermon, Acts chapter 7 verse 59, it tells us that they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he died. He wasn't stoned to death. He was received by the Lord. But note this, get this. Paul just said that being a servant means that you have high standing and great confidence. Look at the confidence of Stephen. All he was doing was serving the widows. And next thing you know, he is standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin and he is preaching the gospel. Because of the great confidence that flows right out of one who serves. But, get this, Stephen also had a high standing. What do you mean? Acts chapter 7, verse 56, Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And there is no higher standing for anyone than when Jesus stands up for you. Jesus was standing for Stephen. And you know, that's what this is really all about. All that we're studying tonight. It's not about, are you a good enough person to be an elder in a church? Are you maybe just good enough to be a deacon? A junior elder? That's how I viewed it growing up. The deacons were the junior elders. They just weren't quite there. But we all had high hopes for them. You know, and it was the stepping stone procedure, and it was all about the quality of the, of the person and how good they were and what they did. And the reality is, I read through this, and the whole thing is about confidence in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And again, I love this, the pillar and support of the truth. The church matters in the world. And church management and care, it is as simple as shepherds and servants. That is the whole structure of leadership in the church. Leaders and servants. And the leaders ought to be the servants of the servants. If we have that, then we understand how a church is to be managed. By people who have a heart for other people. Sheep who love other sheep. And therefore serve as Shepherds within that flock under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And a strong, well-shepherded, well-served church is God's plan for this age. Not going off and doing your own thing. I'm seeing that all the time. 
People branching off and saying, well, I'm not part of the organized church, but I'm doing my thing. Well, you're in trouble. Because that is not God's plan, that's your plan. God's plan is to work through and in the organized church. It was Jesus who said, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. This is my deal. And so the church remains right now in the world. And we just talked about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The church remains the restraining influence against evil. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth who is Jesus Christ. Last thing, where does the shepherd's or the servant's heart come from? Point number four, the servant shepherd. Verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness. By the way, that is the mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith is the mystery of godliness. But note this, why doesn't he say the mystery of God? For all the times I have taken 1 Timothy 3.16 by itself, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, he who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Man, that's the mystery of God, isn't it? The incarnation of Jesus Christ? So why does he say the mystery of godliness instead of the mystery of God? Because, listen, this is not only the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is the incarnation of Christ in you. That is the mystery of godliness. How in the world does any human being, man or woman, shepherd or servant, how in the world do any of us ever think that we could be godly? Christ in you is the mystery of godliness. Christ in you. That's how we live above reproach in a fallen world. Christ in me. The way to walk out any Christian life is Colossians 1.27 What God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is Christ, the servant shepherd, in you the hope of glory.